0: Hi, you are listening to Love Fool, a podcast about love, romance, and media. I'm Caroline, the creator, and I'm currently struggling a bit in this heat. It's now August. I absolutely hate summer. I get a bit of reverse seasonal depression. I know usually people get blue during the winter, but I'm the opposite. My mood always dips in the summer and picks up as it gets cooler. I've always been like this. I remember really dreading summer as a kid. The heat always felt oppressive to me, and I also think the emptiness of summer kind of was intimidating. Like the whole idle time is the devil's playground type of thing. Like I had too much time to overthink in the summer and because I hated the heat and I've never been much of an outdoorsy or athletic person, I always felt a bit restless and trapped with my thoughts. It's always a relief to me when fall comes. Um, I wonder if more people are in the same boat this summer because things are different with the pandemic. So I thought I'd talk about a film everyone kind of loves to hate, which is 500 Days of Summer, since this summer feels like it's lasting forever and I kind of hate it. Um, I feel like this is a romantic movie. Everyone has all collectively decided that we despise some guys will kind of furtively tell me that they still like it, but it's considered very passé to admit to a liking 500 days of summer now. I think this is for a few reasons. Um, one was just overexposure. If you're a younger millennial like me and you had a Tumblr in the mid-2000s, It was basically just 500 days of summer spam all day, every day. Everyone was obsessed with the aesthetics of this film, and I think we just kind of got sick of it because we were overexposed to it over Tumblr and Myspace and mid-2000s internet culture. Also, I think the story didn't age particularly well, and I'll get into more detail later on this, but just at a surface level viewing, the messaging comes off a little... In Sully and Sexist, watching this in 2020, I think it's difficult to ignore the pretty shallow and entitled attitude of the male protagonist and the lack of depth of Summer, the title character and the female romantic lead, and really the lack of romantic depth to the storyline in general. Um, I'm going to get into why I think this isn't actually a fair assessment, but I don't think there's any getting around that it turns people off because... I think a modern-day audience is often unsure how aware this film is of its casually sexist vibe. Like, the visuals are just so unironically romantic. It's difficult to tell sometimes if we're supposed to be viewing the story seriously or as a critique, which I do believe was the writer and director's intention, but it often feels very much like straight-up, unironic, manic pixie dream girl porn. But if you're around my age, there is no denying that most people really went nuts for this film when it came out. Like, if you remember when it was released in 2009, everyone was talking about it. Everyone liked it, men and women, which is pretty unique for a romantic film. It had totally widespread unisex appeal. Um, The first time I saw it, I saw it in theaters, actually, and I was 16, and Netflix streaming and all of that really wasn't a thing yet. So if you grew up in a small cultural wasteland town like I did, the films you were mainly exposed to were very glossy, wide-release, mainstream films from big studios. We forget now because the landscape is so different media-wise, but most romantic films that you'd see in a theater in the 2000s had... um kind of a slick commercial quality to them. Like, major studio films all wanted this super high-def, extra crisp lighting, and it was all sort of sterile looking, and the shots were super conventional. Um, The soundtracks to romance films usually featured top 20 songs, or at least a top 20 artist covering something. The casting was still pretty homogenous and white, and the beauty standard in the mid-2000s was, like, everybody looked like they were auditioning to be a part of the Bachelor franchise, which always creeped me out. Like, some corporate eugenics committee decided what a romantic pairing should look like. And, you know, costume and fashion-wise in the mid-2000s, it was just starting to become mainstream acceptable to shop at thrift stores or wear vintage-inspired clothing. So the clothing in mainstream films was pretty banal. Like, someone raided a Dillard's in the Midwest— And in 2009, we were just starting to climb out of that and really start appreciating retro and quirkier clothing at a mainstream level, but it hadn't quite hit yet. So when I was 16 and saw 500 Days of Summer in theaters, it felt totally fresh and so different compared to other romantic mainstream films. It had a nonlinear storyline for one. Um, that felt like a friend telling you a story and it had all these quirky elements like a fantasy dance sequence and cartoon birds and split screens. And um, also he didn't get the girl in the end, even though from his perspective, she's perfect for him. And it's not really tragic that he doesn't end up with her at the end. So it was was not a typical romantic storyline. A lot of people made comparisons to Annie Hall, and I definitely see that and admire it. Um, Nobody was really going there in mainstream romantic films in 2009. Romantic storytelling was still very conventional. Even the lighting in 500 Days of Summer was unique for its time. It was that indie golden hour lighting that you just didn't see a whole lot of it in mainstream films in 2009. The coloring wasn't this Disney-fied, ultra-commercial, bright coloring that we had been used to seeing, it was subdued, it felt vintage. Um, The use of blue as a motif, I think at this point, more than 10 years later, it's kind of mocked, but it was very eye-popping and unique and lovely in 2009. Um, And blue was this common thread that sort of connected... The entire piece together. Her blue eyes, the blue birds, the, the blue outfits. And it was this kind of robin's egg blue that was obvious, but not cartoonish. It was very aesthetically pleasing. And it's also a color we don't really associate with romance typically. Um, we associate blue with melancholy. So in that way, it kind of took the stereotypes of traditionally romantic colors um, and turned it on its head. So like I mentioned before, in the early to mid 2000s, we were also primed for the soundtrack of a mainstream romance film to be unoriginal. Like, they had big budgets so they could afford to have whatever, like, Nora Jones song they wanted. And this, I think, wasn't even specific to romance films. I think there was a strong preference to not make any risky choices on the soundtrack in mainstream films. And when this indie aesthetic started to infiltrate mainstream movies, there was a shift also towards edgier music in the soundtracks. And I really credit Alexandra Potsavas for this shift. Um, She was not the music supervisor for 500 Days of Summer, but it was around this time that she was... Getting involved in a lot of projects, so I associate her with this time and this shift. Um, And I actually credit her with developing my music taste as a preteen. If you're around my age, so you were a preteen or teenager in the mid 2000s, go look at the credits of anything you were watching at that time. So, The OC, The Twilight Movies, Gossip Girl, Grey's Anatomy. Alexandra Potsavas was the music supervisor during the heyday of all that. And she really went out of her way to include non-mainstream and unsigned artists into mainstream soundtracks. I picked up on this when I was a teenager because a lot of how I was introduced to new music was in movies and TV shows. And I started seeing her name pop up on IMDb when I would search for these soundtracks. And eventually I just started looking at what projects she was working on, regardless of whether I watched the show or the movie, and just looked up those tracks on YouTube because I realized she would unearth the coolest shit. It was like a cheat code to discovering great music for me. Alexandra Patsava's is one of those people who is so influential and cool, but not really known, kind of like Marion Dougherty, who was this amazing casting director in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who picked offbeat, very unsafe unvanilla choices for films that went on to become iconic era defining roles like, Midnight Cowboy, She Worked on Grease, Panic in Needle Park, The Lost Boys. But you've probably never heard of Marianne Dougherty if you're not in the industry or like a film nerd. Um, and I doubt Alexander Podsavis is ever going to have the kind of name recognition of someone like J.J. Abrams or Spielberg, yet her role in shaping our culture was so substantial. Um, but anyway, I digress. When... Aesthetically indie films like Juno and 500 Days of Summer hit the mainstream market. They didn't have just one token hipster song. It was pretty much, they were all pretty much indie artists or older music. No top 20s pop. Which was a huge shift, and everyone loved it. Everyone my age was obsessed with the soundtrack of 500 Days of Summer. I think most people remember the Smiths and Morrissey being featured because of that, like, meet cute scene in the elevator where they bond over the song. But um, the song I remember everyone going bananas over was Sweet Disposition by The Temper Trap. I mean, that song was the soundtrack to so many younger. Millennial romantic daydreams. We were all romantically fixated on that song. But I mean, just listening to the, the these artists, and keep in mind, this is two thousand nine. The soundtrack had Regina Spektor, Bell and Sebastian, Doves, Hall and Oates, Feist, Simon and Garfunkel. This is a great soundtrack in an era where like Keith Urban songs were still being put on mainstream rom com soundtracks. In terms of casting, there. Is a departure from that homogenous, hyper-attractive look that every character in a 2000s mainstream rom-com had where they put glasses on them or gave them like a punk wardrobe, but they still would look so squeaky clean and symmetrical, like they just got done filming a Crest commercial. And... Zoë Deschanel and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were not conventional picks for mainstream romantic leads at the time. They're obviously super gorgeous and talented, but these were both actors who had been in other mainstream films before, but not as the romantic leads. And that is because she doesn't look like a Victoria's Secret model and he doesn't look like Brad Pitt or like Ryan Reynolds. And that was the type of attractive you really had to be to play those kinds of roles at the time. Like Joseph Gordon Levitt and Zoe Deschanel have a sort of casual everydayness to their appeal. They don't seem overly chiseled. And it makes sense that we had such a strong positive reaction to seeing this couple on screen because they actually look like the hottest person in your town or someone you might actually see in real life and not this. Supernaturally perfect looking couple um, that dominated the screen before and was sort of hyper normalized, meaning like we all knew that level of hot wasn't totally believable and kind of fake, but we had accepted it anyway. And this was sort of a breath of fresh air in terms of casting. And in terms of style, I think this is one of the first mainstream films to really usher the indie or hipster aesthetic into the mainstream. Everything looked like vaguely retro yet modern, sort of like Madewell. Everything kind of looked like a Madewell catalog, but back in the day when that was somewhat trendy because now Madewell has become the new gap. Like in other romantic films at the time, if a character had taste that deviated from typical mainstream chic, it was a fixture of that character's personality or they were like making a statement. But in 500 Days of Summer, the wardrobe was aspirational in a way because it was pretty, but it wasn't inaccessible or too perfect, nor was it presented at as this, like, anti-mainstream statement that the characters were making. It was just the norm for them, and it was sort of presenting this idea of this is how actually cool, real people can dress and wear their hair and make style statements. I think it's hard to remember because the landscape has changed so much um, where we have the elevation of like normal looking attractive people playing lead roles now and not just the quirky side characters like since the mid-2000s you've had a shift where people like Chris Pratt and John Krasinski are playing action heroes and girls like Anna Kendrick and Mindy Kaling are playing romantic heroines It's like that has very much become normalized and encouraged, but it just did not used to be like that. So the very things that made this film so appealing initially, so, you know, the soundtrack, the casting, the overall soft indie aesthetic, those things became the things that we resent about it because it's fucking everywhere now. Every Capital One credit card commercial has like golden hour lighting and relatably attractive people with bangs and some coffee house quote unquote indie song playing in the back. Or at least it seems indie because it's not a top 20 pop song, but really the guy has like millions of streams on Spotify. So it's not actually hip or underground. It's like faux hip. And that's how all of these things go. If this isn't like a law like Campbell's law or Goodhart's law. It should be like the law that as soon as something becomes recognized as appealing aesthetically, it's only a matter of time before mainstream media abuses the shit out of it to sell things. And then it inevitably becomes unappealing. Like it's difficult to overcome the visceral reaction you have to something once you've seen the cynical way it's been co-opted and wielded by corporations and kind of a patronizing attempt to convince you that buying a vintage-inspired Madewell dress is going to affirm your identity or help you attain a sense of satisfaction with your life. And I think to millennials' credit, growing up with the internet has given us a lot of problems and neuroses, but it did give us more awareness that this Capitalist machine is always churning and using our preferences against us, and when we recognize how an aesthetic has been weaponized, it's difficult to return to something like 500 Days of Summer and not be a little repulsed. We've seen the aesthetic too much now, and we're also maybe subconsciously resentful of how it's been exploited. So another thing that I think people, especially millennials, take issue with in 500 Days of Summer is the display of not very woke sexual politics. Um, I brought up earlier that people can view this film as manic pixie dream girl porn. I'm pretty sure I've tossed the term around before in previous episodes, but in case you don't know what that is, I'll define it. Um, So a manic pixie dream girl or MPDG is a term that's been around for a while. I definitely remember using it when I was in high school, but I had my history wrong. Um, I always thought It started because of Garden State. Um, I thought it was a description used for Natalie Portman's character. Um, And Garden State came out in 2004. But um, the term actually started in 2005. Um, A film critic named Nathan Rubin called Kristen Dunst's character in the movie Elizabeth Town, a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is totally true. Um, I guess to me it's just a less iconic, kind of forgettable movie, Elizabethtown, um, compared to Garden State. So I just kind of forgot about that. So anyway, A Manic Pixie Dream Girl is defined as a female character who, and I quote, "...exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures." So there are these girls who usually are kind of quirky and adorable, who are essentially a plot device. They don't appear to be focused on pursuing their own inner happiness. They really just exist to be catalysts for men to have their own like existential awakening. The interiority of an MPDG is sort of irrelevant, or it's s- sort of ornamental, like a pretty backdrop to the plot. And the plot is all about the male protagonist's experience in his inner world. And that is why a lot of people would say that Summer, Zoe Deschanel's character, functions as a Man Pixie dream girl. And there are obvious elements of this, like the idolization of her by Tom, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, how she sort of inspires this major career change for him and an aha moment in his life. But really, the whole film is a critique of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl fantasy. The whole thing is a wink. The film is not taking itself seriously. There's this, like, booming narrator giving you all this jocular narration, a dance number, animated birds. I'm not really sure why sometimes the ironic tone doesn't land. Maybe it's because JGL is so handsome we want to take him seriously. But really, he's supposed to be the trope of the sensitive guy who develops a Manic Pixie Dream Girl fantasy um, about what love is supposed to be like. We're supposed to see that he's foolish and that the way he thinks about relationships is really immature. He's not supposed to be an aspirational boyfriend. Just a random aside, JGL in real life is like a trophy husband to this woman who... Builds robots and is the founder and CEO of a tech company. And I'm not really sure why their story hasn't been turned into a rom com yet. That whole setup sounds like the ultimate 2020 romantic fantasy for some millennial chick with a wing membership. Back to 500 Days of Summer. The summer character definitely displays an awareness that she's playing this role that she didn't quite sign up for from the get-go. So inherently, she really isn't a true manic pixie dream girl because she dumps Tom and moves on to someone else. Spoiler alert. Um, She directly challenges the narrative he's trying to place her in. So in that way, 500 Days of Summer is really an anti-love story. And um, most... Unshallow viewers would look past the golden hour lighting and the blue motif and Zoe Deschanel's bangs and see that this really isn't a romance, but I don't think that we can trust the typical American audience to not be shallow a lot of the time. So there's an entire swath of people who I think watch this movie, get wrapped up in the aesthetic, and miss the critique entirely even when the goofy narrator voice literally tells you this is not a love story. The movie Jennifer's Body, I think, struggles in much the same way, and that actually came out in the same year as 500 Days of Summer, 2009. I am a big Diablo Cody fan, and I think Jennifer's Body was an incredible movie because it was a horror film, satirizing horror films in a very sophisticated way, like not like a scary movie type of way. And I don't think that um, mainstream audiences understood that at the time. Um, Diablo Cody has this bimbo wit that has a very subtle intellectual bent to it that went over a lot of people's heads. And that film is only now starting to get the credit that it deserved like a decade later with Gen Z, interestingly enough. And I think we see... A very similar issue with why people find these films like jennifer's body and 500 days of summer as problematic and it's because the audience is taking them at face value instead of viewing them through the lens of that the creators intended they're both critiques both films are critiques of the genre they're portraying jennifer's body is a critique of horror films 500 days of summer is a critique of romance films but even as a critique i think 500 days of summer does a great job of cataloging the individual love experience like the idealization and the projection of goodness the observations the perception of intimacy the assumption of similarity i think it detailed a lot of what most people feel and that we hope is returned when we fall in love and I argue that none of these things are inherently evil or problematic or sexist. I think to fight against or judge these things too harshly is to deny our humanity. These are natural stages that we go through that blind us when we fall in love. And if anything, I think most people who have experienced unrequited love or have felt romantically rejected, if they're honest with themselves, there is that sense of shock and Indignation along with the loss, kind of in what we experience um, with Tom's character. I think when we feel things so strongly, it's difficult to imagine that feeling not being reciprocated. It's jarring. And I think to the person who is in love, it also feels unjust, you know, that they should have to suffer. And I think we see, like, incel culture take this to the extreme, right? But I think to deny that you have ever felt some sense of romantic entitlement at some point in your life is disingenuous. This is something pretty much all of us face and have to mature past. And I think this film ultimately achieved what it set out to achieve, I forget whether it was the writer or the director, but one of them was very adamant that this film be categorized as a coming-of-age film rather than a romantic film, and that's a super important designation. So really when I get over myself and the knee-jerk response to roll my eyes at the tweeness of this film and the cringy high school era of my life that it represents, I actually don't hate this film at all. It's just not a love story. So that's my take on 500 Days of Summer. Just a short little episode during this endless quarantine summer. To connect with me and hear about future episodes, follow me on Instagram. My handle is at Little Fool. Thanks for listening.